0: Last week, if you'll remember, I shared from the book of Jude. Jude wanted to write the church about this great salvation, and he felt first he had to warn the church as to false doctrine and false teachings that were creeping in. And it's time to do that again. I wanted to share with you a teaching tonight on progressive Christianity. Has anybody heard that term? If you've heard the term progressive Christianity, just lift up your hand. Okay. All right? I mean, it's progressive because it's keeping up with the times. It's not dated. It's not antiquated. How many of you know truth is never antiquated? Truth cannot be antiquated. We'd have to say math doesn't keep up with the times. Well, maybe Chicago math would change that. But anyways, I mean, math is math. Two plus two equals four, and that is never antiquated because it is reality. Okay, so, so... Christianity does not need to progress it was completed in Christ Jesus so it's perfected in Christ and so what we want to look at is progressive Christianity and many 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 churches are moving into this concept of progressive Christianity because of the pressures of our culture and the fact that we are in the 21st century which for some reason would change and alter everything which uh, in reality, which makes no sense. But anyways, let me help you understand progressive Christianity. This is a definition from a website that confesses progressive Christianity. And it says this, progressive Christianity is acceptance of human diversity with a strong emphasis on social justice, care for the poor and oppressed, and environmental stewardship of the earth. Those are all good things. A deep belief in the centrality of the instruction of Jesus to love one another, according to John 15, 17. That's good too. Which leads to compassion, promoting justice and mercy, tolerance, and working towards solving societal problems of poverty, discrimination, and environmental issues. Those are all good things, but there's one key thing missing from this statement. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. we we have the emphasis on what he taught but it's missing the central figure of christianity and that's christ and of course the word of god and so in and of itself you can talk to people about christianity and say should we care for the poor absolutely should we set those who are prisoners free and at liberty yes we should be caring for the oppressed should we be good stewards of the earth which god has given us Absolutely, yes, we should, as Christians, should care and tend, and we should have compassion, and we should love one another and promote justice and mercy. I agree with all of that. How about you? Yeah, amen. But there are boundaries within that that we are to approach these things, and those are through the teachings of Christ Jesus. Here's some of the basic Concepts of progressive Christianity. They're starting, they're trying to hold on to the term Christianity. I'm gonna back up because you're all gonna read that. They're trying to hold on to the concepts of Christianity because of its foundation, because its moral impact in the earth. Even atheists claim to practice Christian virtues because they work. All right? So they're trying to hold on to Christianity and many churches that have gone liberal and have waned from the gospel are holding on to the term Christianity. We now, if we want to say that we're Christian, we have to say we're biblical. Because even saying Christian doesn't determine the truth that lines up with Scripture. So they want to hold on to Christianity, but they want to be progressive so that they are relevant to their culture whatever relevant means relevant typically means the culture will accept us can i teach you something about the words of jesus it will always be a rock of offense and a stumbling stumbling stone to the culture because the culture is made up of people who are sinners and jesus commands all sinners to repent So there's always going to be a conflict. The minute we try to make Christianity appealing to the lost, we're going to have a problem because it calls everyone to the cross, which is offensive. And so we've got to watch out for that. Now here, trying to stay relevant with the term Christianity but being progressive to the times, these are the key emphasis that it looks at. Pluralism. We're going to look into each one of these, what they mean. What we mean by pluralism is this, all roads lead to God. There's not just one religion that is ultimately true. You hear quotes like, everyone has a seat at the table of God doesn't matter how you get to him whether it's jesus whether it's krishna whether it's buddha whether it's muhammad they all lead to god and so this is a pluralistic religion we should accept and love everyone you've heard ecumenism uh, where we gather together with different faiths you know i could agree with different faiths on different cultural things if, if I, I can stand alongside Muslims who will be against abortion and the killing of infants, I, I can stand with them. I, I don't accept the doctrine, but together with, with Orthodox Jews and, and with Muslims and with anybody else that's going to fight for the life of the unborn, I'll fight that fight. But I'm not going to join hands and pray to the same God, because my God is Jesus, and it's not the same as Muhammad, and it's not the same as what they follow. I don't believe in pluralism. We, in fact, believe what Jesus said. None can come to the Father except through me. And so it's quite narrow of a road. There is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. It's the name Christ Jesus. So we reject pluralism. There's also a phrase that happens a lot in uh, progressive churches, and that is you belong without believing. You hear a lot of churches say that. Hey, you belong without believing because they're trying to get people to just feel comfortable in church, right? And I, personally, I don't feel that we're getting through to anybody if they're comfortable. I mean, the Word of God pierces between the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow, it divides. Sin from sanctification. It should make us a little uncomfortable because it's challenging our position in Christ. Though we know we're accepted in the Beloved, we always want to be washed by the blood, okay? So pluralism is not accepted. The concept, the reason they're saying you belong before you believe, is it's true that we all belong to being made in God's image and that we are all sinners. So if you want to come to the table of sinners, everybody, there's room for you. But coming into the kingdom, you have to believe to be born again. So that is key, and many churches do not make that decision, that dividing line, that point by which you must confess confess by faith Jesus is Lord. So we have a problem with pluralism. Now, the second issue Is the Bible. Progressive Christianity says that the Bible is not inspired. That is a concept that it is God breathed. The Word of God was given to us by the Spirit of God through Christ, who is the Word who became flesh. We believe that that is inspired, inspirited, God breathed. We believe it is inerrant in its original uh, giving. Uh, we understand that there may be some missing commas and quotes and problems with our translations, but the original word spoken is inerrant, infallible, no, nothing wrong in it, and it is ultimate truth and the canon by which we live. They say it's nothing more than an ancient spiritual travel journal. It just kind of helps you. It's contradictory. It's not internally coherent, And it is not authoritative for life. The problem with that is, is then what is authoritative in life? Is there anything that is authoritative? Because if truth is relative, then how are we going to find any realm of agreement? Well, what they do is they keep the Bible in the realm of mystery. It's a mystery. We'll just find it as we work together together. All we know is we're to love each other and accept everybody. The key here is, you're going to find over and over, the key is tolerance and loving one another. It's the key word. It's the key expression. If you would just love one another, if we could all just get along, if we could all just love and tolerate each other's behaviors, and this is what Jesus was trying to get us to do, it be in agreement with one another can I tell you that we'll never be in agreement with one another if we are never in agreement with God. That is the first place we have to find ourselves in agreement. Because you and I, according to our emotions and according to our moods and according to our intellect and according to what we've learned, we'll never be on the same page unless we believe in something outside of ourselves that is transcendent and given to us by God that's what we agree on but they take away the authority of scripture that's a problem well if you take away the authority of scripture what do you talk about concerning sin they don't believe in the concept of the fall or original sin they don't believe that it started by man and that we do not have a sin nature would you stop telling people they're sinners You don't know them, and what they're doing in their life may not be what you like, but stop telling them they're sinners. There is no original sin. Here's the problem with not having original sin. You therefore don't have the fall. If you don't have the fall, how do you explain evil? Where does evil come from? If we're all good in our nature, and we're all kind, where does evil come from? God either has to become the author of evil, it can't be us, well, it's people who just don't get along. And so you have to understand that because of the fall, evil entered the world, and Satan became the controller of man's nature. We need to realize that we were never separated in the first place from God, they say, We are beloved and accepted by God just as we are. Well, then you don't need a Savior, do you? So Jesus no longer saves man from sin. Jesus is a teacher to man on how to behave morally. That's all he's reduced to is a moral teacher. And that's what they're teaching Christianity to be. Jesus is a model and exemplar of someone who has christened uh, as both human and divine. He became both human and divine because of his Christ consciousness. He became into that, that place, and we're to follow that example where we discover our inward divineness and become more like Jesus to where we can become both releasing the divine in us mingled with new age doctrine isn't it well what does that do then for the atonement see why did you need Jesus to have to die for sin if there is no sin and we're all of a Christ consciousness and God always has loved us does love us if we would just accept that fact we'd all get along and treat each other as God conscious people So what of the atonement? Well, the atonement is something made up by Christians in the 15th century, which is just something so horrible. The concept that Jesus had to die on a cross is horrific and unnecessary. The idea that God the Father had to kill his kid for vengeance and wrath against sin. He needed blood. And so he decided to kill his own child which they reference as cosmic child abuse. So that doctrine has got to be thrown out. So we're not going to teach you about the blood of Jesus because that's, that is absolutely horrible. This concept of Jesus dying on a cross because he had to pay a price to his father who was just vengeful and angry at sinners is a wrong doctrine according to progressive christianity and so if you get rid of the bible then you have to get rid of sin and if you get rid of sin you don't need a savior and you get rid of jesus needing to die for sin and therefore you come to universalism the idea that no one is going to be punished or go to hell everyone's eventually going to be saved and restored to a right relationship to God. Now please everybody remember, this is under the guise of Christianity. This is in the churches round about us, not just one or two here or there, it's invading the churches dramatically. Whole movements and denominations are accepting this ideology. There are some who still say that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but even if someone dies and goes to hell, ultimately he will restore them back to God. So if we get rid of sin and we get rid of Jesus' atonement and we get rid of uh, hell, then everybody gets saved. So let's just get along, everybody. You Christians that are fundamentalists, believing in the a punal atonement of Jesus Christ and the blood that had to be shed because of our sin are the people that are creating the problem. You're telling everybody else they're wrong. You're telling everybody else they're going to hell. You're exclusivists. Right. Because this is the truth of God's word. So if we can eliminate all these other things, then the main emphasis that Jesus came to teach us about was social justice. Jesus wants to teach us how to love one another, stop judging one another, and start loving one another right where they're at, no matter what they do, what they say, or how they act. Social justice is the issue of sin. It's not between God and mankind. God's good with you. Sin is what's going on between people. That's what Jesus came to teach us about the oppressed and oppressors. That's why you, fundamentalist Christians, evangelical Christians, you are the haters. You're the oppressors. You're the problem. You better get used to that. You better get used to being called a hater and one who is a judger and one who is the problem. You're the oppressor. What happens is the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice and treating each other with fairness and acceptance and tolerance. Last of all, This, therefore, then, opens the door to inclusivism. In other words, if all are going to be saved, there must be a universal acceptance of same-sex relationships, marriage, and a belief in the validity of transgenderism and a rejection of birth sex norms. This has opened up the gates. Again, you, you, you might think I'm harping on the LGBTQ, but... I'm here to alert you as to the global power at work in all nations. This Equality Act that I shared with you about on Sunday is not just happening here in the United States. It's not just an issue here between Republican, Democrats, let's get this right. It is an issue globally, every nation, the UN is looking at it, and the UN is forming these concepts. So are every world government and ruler. It is the power that is flooding in. It is the power of anti christ Understand it. You can dress it up in many different ways. It came in waves through communism. Now it's coming in waves through LGBTQ. But we must be careful because as we're being accused of intolerance and hatred, we cannot behave with intolerance and hatred. This is the difficult part. Because your human emotion wants to get angry. Well, anger is biblical. The problem with anger is it's one letter away from danger. So we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Don't ever let your flesh rise up to the place where you're beginning to hate those who hate you. That's hard. How many of you find that hard? It's very hard, isn't it? That's why God put a spirit in you. Because you can't handle it. And so we must lean on the Holy Spirit in our understanding. Amen? And so... We've got to work in the midst of all of this with the love of Jesus, but yet holding on to the truth of God's word, helping people understand that their brokenness and that their sin and that their lifestyle is somehow an offense to God as mine has been, and I can easily fall into as well. But I have to watch, and I have a helper. I have one who has come into my life that has set me free from the power of my flesh. And God can set you free as well. And so we're in a bit of a war. How many of you know that? Well, tonight what I want to concentrate on is the issue of Jesus. The heart of this issue is sin, and the sacrifice of Christ. This is the dividing line for Christianity. Jesus came to die for sinners, didn't he? So the concept is called penal substitution. That's what we'll be celebrating at Easter all next week. What do you think the word penal means? It means punishment, penalty. Okay? So there was a penalty and an offense that must be punished. And what do you think substitution means? Someone else is going to take that punishment for the penalty. So Jesus came to become the one who received the punishment for our sin so that we could have an exchange. Instead of the judgment of God, we will have the favor of God. That was done at the cross so that we would die with Christ and our old nature in Adam and be born again in Christ to have now sonship with God, okay? But they look at it as something abusive and horrible because God, who is angry and ticked off at everybody, has to punish His own Son at the cross, Instead of going through this systematically with you uh, through Scripture, I found a portion of a video that explains it quite well. So I'm going to ask and play this video for us to watch. It's 11 minutes, and this will help us understand the concept very well and clearly of penal substitution, and we'll have a QA and a concerning this after this video, okay? All right. There is a constant stream of misrepresentations, straw man arguments against penal substitution.
1: Hey, God is less grumpy because of Jesus, atonement theory in 17 seconds, and much more...
0: Others say that penal substitution requires we view God like a pagan deity who is mollified by throwing a virgin into a volcano.
1: The God who is mollified by throwing the virgin in the volcano or the God who is mollified by his son being nailed to a tree is not the Abba of Jesus.
0: Brian Zond is a pastor in Missouri uh, who wrote a book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And what's clear from his book is that he hates penal substitution. He thinks it's a terrible, evil, evil doctrine. But what's also clear from his book is that he never actually interacts with penal substitution. He handles straw men and misrepresentations on every page and never engages with the biblical doctrine. Some years ago, I wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus. In it, I said, the cross is not a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he didn't commit.
1: But what they're forgetting is that God is triune, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they're all of one essence. And because they're all of one essence, they all agree in terms of motivation for the cross.
2: It would be wrong to suggest that um, uh, the Lord Jesus is being subjected to a punishment for which he was unwilling. Uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of John,
1: nobody takes my life. I lay it down willfully, and he says, "If I have the power to lay it down, he says, I also have the power of the authority to take it up again."
2: Or that he, in turn, was seeking to coerce the Father to uh, display his love in a way that would be, if you like, breaking new territory.
1: It makes God a vindictive monster. Does God really love me, or has He simply been paid off?
2: The Bible is so helpful to us if we just read it, you know, that uh, the most famous verse in the Bible explains the magnificence of the love of God. You know, John three sixteen, that he so loved, that he gave. Jesus did not die on the cross so that the Father would love us. Jesus died on the cross because the Father loves us. The scripture is very clear that to understand Jesus correctly, we have to understand that he is the Son of God from all eternity. We have a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in in rank and authority and power and equally God.
1: And our plan of salvation flowed out of their love for one another, so
2: we should not at all picture a a, a flailing son who's turning from a vengeful father. He's fully God with the Father and Spirit, and at a point in time, as John's Gospel tells us, that the Son of God, the Word, became flesh. And what this means is that the Son of God added to His divine nature, a second nature, a human nature, so that we can really say that in the Son of God, God Himself is taking His own righteous requirements upon Himself in our place. God's justice was satisfied by God.
1: He absorbed as God the punishment that we deserved. So when someone calls the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement divine child abuse, they're failing to make that distinction that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh laying down his life intentionally. That's not child abuse. That is a hero of the story, taking the cross on as a means of saving his people. And what they're really criticizing is just a weak caricature of the doctrine itself. It is a perfect design that is Trinitarian in
3: nature, where each member of the Trinity voluntarily and freely does their part. I love how Jesus in John chapter 17 repeatedly refers to those whom the Father gave to Him and the glory that He had with the Father in eternity, this glory that is now going to be revealed. This is referred to in theology as the covenant of redemption
1: this is a manifestation of the love of the father the love of the son and the love of the spirit
3: the idea is the father loved the son and he expressed his love for the son by bequeathing a people to the son in eternity past
1: and when the father sends he knows in that sending what he's giving up
3: the son responds in love to the father by dying to redeem the people whom the father gave to him
1: and the Son voluntarily comes out of love for the Father, out of love for this people.
3: And the Spirit, the personification of the love between the Father and the Son actually applies redemption to all those for whom Christ died. And so my salvation really is part of a bigger expression of the love that God has for God.
1: All this construct creating contradiction between the persons of the Trinity is just the work of the devil. This is the doctrine of Christianity. This is the doctrine that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world.
2: At the end of the Reformation era, there arose a whole viewpoint known as Socinianism. So Sinianism was really going back to earlier heresies. It denied the doctrine of the Trinity and, of course, denied the deity of the Son. It denied penal substitution. It ultimately argued that God is a Unitarian God, not Trinitarian, that God is simply able to forgive sins without any kind of atonement or payment for sin. But this was their argument. If God demands a payment, then he
1: isn't really forgiving If he forgives he shouldn't demand a payment you can either have sins forgiven or paid for but not both i do not deny that there is a substitutionary component in jesus death on the cross paul writes about it and i'm not denying it i'm just saying god did not say i need a pound of flesh from those people but their pounds of flesh aren't good enough, holy enough, heavy enough for whatever. I need Jesus, I need a divine pound of flesh.
2: I mean, I had this image of God going like, okay, listen, this guy's worthy of death. I, I, don't, I don't care if I kill him. I just, I'm gonna kill somebody. I and mean, I, I, I just gotta kill somebody out there. And Jesus goes like, you can kill me. And he goes, oh, okay, as long as I get to kill somebody. And the obvious question is like, why does God need to kill anybody in order to forgive?
1: That's the Socinian argument. And on the face of it, it seems to appeal to human reason and you might say well so what's wrong with that argument and scripture answers it clearly without shedding a blood there is no forgiveness forgiveness always requires
0: some sort of sacrifice
3: why can't god do what he asks us to be able to do to freely forgive without demanding
2: retribution first jesus doesn't say punch him in the mouth and then you can forgive him or kill their baby and then you can remember he just goes like just forgive them if
4: Jesus says we're supposed to forgive each other why can't God just forgive us so often the parable of the prodigal son is used as a rebuttal to penal substitutionary atonement
1: again I go back to the parable of the prodigal son there was no payment the father is not He isn't saying, okay, I'm going to forgive that kid for taking the inheritance and squandering it and all of that. But somebody's going to pay me back. No, there's no payment.
0: So the whole concept of thinking that forgiveness can be offered without an actual sacrifice on God's part doesn't even jive with the way we think about forgiveness in human circumstances, in everyday life.
4: In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So Jesus is saying that if someone sins against you by slapping you on the right cheek, the, the justice would mean an eye for an eye. So justice would be return a slap for a slap.
0: As all theologians should know, the very concept of forgiveness is based on the ancient practice of releasing a debt rather than collecting it from someone else.
4: But Jesus is commanding us to forgive those who have sinned against us, and doing this requires us to, to turn the other cheek. And and turning the other cheek is to absorb the justice owed to that person, so the, so the justice that that person actually deserves we're absorbing back upon ourselves and so in the story of the prodigal son there is a debt that is owed and remember the son had asked for his share of the estate and of course squandered his whole inheritance he spent everything and so in order for the father to forgive his son he had to absorb the loss of that money himself Uh, he's either replacing it or he's taking the loss but the point is he's not making the son pay it back
0: And what God does in the gospel is he decides not to pay them back what they deserve, but rather bear the brunt of that sin on himself.
4: In the gospel, God's justice demands the death of the sinner. We know this from Romans 6.23, which says that the wages of sin is death. But instead of giving us the death that we deserve, God chose to forgive us by essentially turning the other cheek. And so what he was doing was absorbing that justice, which is our death, into himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. So instead of us dying for our sins, which is what we deserve, Christ dies for our sins. Christ dies for our sins.